There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Electric cars, if they use the right sort of electricity, then they won't pollute the atmosphere. When petrol cars apparently emit 128 grams of CO2 emissions on average per kilometre, no wonder governments are keen to get us heading down the electric car road with incentives and sticks. Incentives in the form of uh, grants and to get new cars and sticks in the form of low emission zones. All part of the UK's plans to meet their net zero target by 2050. And of course other countries have similar timetables. But will cars really make all the difference? Well, road vehicles do account for almost 12% of all greenhouse gas emissions, or they did in 2016. And 60% of that was from passenger vehicles, cars, motorcycles and buses. So it could make a difference, but is it enough? And is it achievable? We'll look at all of that today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Now, Steve, we are told buying an electric car will help us do our bit to try and mitigate the effects of climate change uh, because we are not, of course, directly polluting the atmosphere. But how much of, of the impact is it actually having? Is it realistic as a proposition for us all to drive battery-powered vehicles? And is there a danger that ultimately it'll see us driving actually more uh, and therefore consume more energy. After all, you know, it's the, the, energy, the electricity isn't necessarily clean. It has to come from somewhere. So what if we're using unclean electricity and driving more and kidding ourselves because we're in electric cars? Well, this, this is what's actually known as the Jevons paradox. And William Jevons, who, apart from the, the sin of creating neoclassical economics, is also quite a polymath and intelligent in other ways. And he pointed out that when something becomes cheaper, you use more of it, you don't use less uh, so consequently, if you get if you if it gets cheaper to um, uh, you know produce energy in some sense, we use more energy. We don't we don't reduce our usage because it's fallen in, in cost. Um, but, but equally, if you if you create something like electric cars and you try to move to them, then to do that move, you've got to produce the input. So yeah, it's great not to be producing carbon dioxide directly from vehicles anymore. But how many vehicles? Are you, can you actually maintain the this, the nature of transportation between one system and another. And that's where, uh, uh, again, I, I love the work of Simon Meitschau. I'm actually going to be meeting Simon in Finland pretty soon, by the way, for the first time. But uh, his work points out that we simply don't have, not only we don't have the reserves necessary for a complete conversion from ICE, the internal combustion engine, to uh, electric vehicle, EV uh, transportation. We don't have, don't have sufficient lithium to do that at the moment. And our rate of mining lithium is so slow that if we attempted to uh, phase out fossil uh, car, fuel cars by 2030, I think it is, uh, it'd take us 63 years of current mining rates to get there. You know, it's not, not going to happen. Does it have to be lithium? Are there alternatives, though, well, that we could the, be using? You know? This this is where uh, Elon Musk's uh, point between the difference between a prototype and a production model is important because there are new technologies coming along that use other 
other more commonly available elements than lithium to store energy in a battery. So you have sodium-based batteries. Uh, probably the most interesting in terms of a long-term sustainability is iron-based batteries because we can effectively now reverse uh, rust. Mm. And you so you have energy. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure which direction it works. I think you use energy to to, to uh, turn rusty uh, metal into pristine and then you release energy by going in the opposite direction. And so iron-based batteries are becoming a thing and there's certainly there are there are prototypes that exist at the moment which are much more efficient we have the possibility of storing energy in what we call supercapacitors uh, electrostatic storage etc etc there's a range of technologies out there but to turn those technologies into something you can go and buy at uh, you know at, at Kmart or um, uh, at the local uh, uh, car factory uh, you're looking 15 20 years and we are not going to make that conversion uh, in anything like sufficient time. So then it means we have to use it less. I mean, even if we, you know, while we've got that problem that we might be driving electric cars, if we can, if we can afford them, if there's availability, uh, you know, where's the power actually coming from? So we need to influence usage. And the only way to influence usage surely is to say, well, OK, we are going to charge you more for each mile you drive. Start introducing road pricing. Make it which, widespread. Which which becomes something which then means the rich can drive and the poor can't, and you've got a case mm. of potential social breakdown. Well, there's actually one of one of. Uh, well, you compensate for that. You can always. I mean, that would be the Australian. You can compensate that by, uh, you know, a, a, a suitable tax system, redistributive tax yeah, system. Yeah, yeah, which had, which had, which had never been invented and never never. <laughs> again, there's modern monetary theory is insight that taxes don't pay for anything. They cancel excessive money creation. Uh, it it would the transfer pricing element that's supposed to be there has never been developed anyway. I'd rather just say cut out the whole idea of using taxes and use the government's money creation capability. However, you do it. You say, well, okay, we are going to give a slug of money to people who are disadvantaged, so that they can afford to they can afford to drive to a point which we think is you know as a sensible amount, and then that pricing will inhibit those people who drive a lot from driving quite so much. Yeah, well, this, this is one way in which the idea I've had of a, a dual currency system where uh, the, the, you have a, you know, you, your money turns up as per usual, you use it as per usual, but you then have a government body issuing universal carbon credits to everybody uh, when they reach the, the level of the average for the country. Uh, then if you consume less than the average, you have excess to sell. And given the distribution of income we face at the moment, quite likely if you gave everybody the average carbon consumption Consumption in America for Americans, then the top two to two to five percent of Americans would not get sufficient carbon credits to be able to buy shop. They'd need to then buy the carbon credits off the ninety-two to ninety-five percent that, uh, or ninety-five to ninety-eight percent that got more carbon credits than they consumed, and that would be your distribution mechanism. Yeah, which is a brilliant idea, isn't it? It's very, very hard to pick faults in that, and that it won't happen. Yeah, it's yeah, such yeah. a brilliant idea, it won't happen absolutely. But I mean, you could see. I mean, in practicality. Uh, you know, you get in your car, then you could have your carbon credit readout. You know, you, you use mm. it with your smartphone and it takes it off your allowance. And uh, if you need more for that journey, you're going to have to buy someone from someone else. Could be an app. Uh, you just say, well, gee, yeah. I haven't got enough money to go shopping at Sainsbury's. I haven't got enough fuel. I'm going to need to buy some extra carbon credits to get down there. And if it's tight that month, yep. I mean, that could be open. You know, that, that, that could be a, 
an open marketplace where prices go up and down depending on on demand, which you know would yeah, be- and that's the whole idea. I mean, that, that's why neoclassicals have put forward this idea where they think they can work out the price. Well, thanks, guys. I thought you said you were in favour of a market system. Yeah, why not let the market work out the quantity? Uh, the, the, you, you, we know the quantity that. Rather than saying the market should work out the quantity, here's the price. Do it the opposite way. It's pure. Uh, it's pure neoclassic you... economics, isn't it? You know, we are exactly, saying yeah. it's a price Hup, mechanism yeah. for a for a limited resource. I mean, economics is all built on yeah. scarcity. This is page one of your textbook, guys. Get with your program. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Aren't they? <laughs> what I love about them is their consistency. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. If you look at and you mentioned the Americans, I mean, they drive. The average American drives twenty two thousand kilometers a year, and the average Brit drives half that. Uh, and and the average American car is polluting three and a half times more than the average British car. So there you are. So they are, per person, pushing out seven times the pollution of the average Brit, and there's 330 million of them. So that be that, that if you're looking for where behaviour wants to change, it's got to start there, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and that means you have to have a new infrastructure that enables it. So in a city like New York, for example, then that's quite feasible. You, you can get around all of New York pretty much on the, uh, on the subway. Um, uh, you might not enjoy the experience in parts of the subway, but you can do it. Uh, but if you try the same thing in San Francisco or in Los Angeles, then it just isn't going to be feasible. So you have to find something else. Yeah, so public transport is the way forward, isn't it? So in uh, in Germany, interestingly, because of this uh, the, the, the crisis with the cost of fuel, they did push up the subsidies. I don't know how they managed to do this because I thought the EU was against this sort of stuff. They're going to be forcing lots of stuff they're against. <laughs> yeah, I think so. 42 euros, uh, you can go anywhere in Germany, or you could. I think they're extending it, actually, because it's been so successful. Uh, if you take other people with you, up to another four, then they only pay seven euros. This is to go anywhere. So you could go from Munich, for example, to Rostock, which is about uh, 780 kilometers. Five of you went. Uh, that works out about 30 cents per kilometer, which is a lot less than it would cost if you were, if you were going to do that uh, by car. So... I mean, public transport has got to be part of the solution, hasn't it? But, you know, I, you know is that going to happen in, in the United States you know, on the Amtrak system? I don't think so. Yeah, and that's the trouble. They don't have the infrastructure for it, whereas the Chinese can do it. They've got the infrastructure. And Europe can do it as well to a large degree. So, again, this comes down to if you had the public investments in the past, then you can make the switch from private transportation to public at the cost of oil rises. But if you haven't done it, it's basically says, well, it's, you know, you've got to get out there and walk. And uh, American cities are not designed for walking. So they, they have a, you know, because they become so reliant upon private transport and so reliant upon uh, internal combustion engines, uh, it may be countries like America that suffer far more out of this than progressive countries like in Europe or even third world countries where you have to have alternative transportation systems, whether that's bicycle or public transport or, you know, the buses you see you all over, over, um, uh, Thailand, which are 12, people, 12 to 14 people sitting in the back of a converted utility. Well, Germany spends six times the amount per head of population on subsidising its its rail network. So at least they recognise it needs to be it needs to be subsidised. But even if you did sort of heavily subsidise trains, I mean, there's not a lot of room. So in the UK, the trains are you know a full. Uh, so if you were if if it was prohibitively expensive for you to travel in private vehicles and everyone was forced on a train but there's no rooms on trains so people would be forced not to travel then obviously you know business decisions are 
influenced by that sort of thing. You know, we've we've talked about, for example, economic complexity on this podcast before, where businesses need to get together to come out with the next great idea, and that's how economies develop and grow. Uh, if you are in, inhibiting travel, then you're stopping that, aren't you? You're stopping progress. Yeah, but there's a certain amount of it which is which is wasteful as well. I mean, uh, we've got used to you know, remote uh, conversations courtesy of the pandemic, uh, which is harsh. But but they're not as you know they're not as good. If you want to do the the brainstorming and the uh, the uh, insights that come out of intellectual discourse, then face to face works a damn sight better. Um, but we we can have workarounds. But the trouble is, you said it's, it's when do you have the infrastructure? Can you actually make the move? And if you can't make the move, then the alternative suddenly goes from, you know, uh, public transport to no transport. And uh, and the main area that's going to hit you in is where you need people for production. Well, it goes from it goes from private transport to no transport. We mean really, if we, if yeah, we private to nothing. You, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, now, one 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 thing that I was actually with um, a couple of train enthusiasts recently, and they were saying, well, if you actually have that hassle of public transportation, you just put more trains on each, uh, more carriages on each train. And to some extent, there's some truth to that. Of course, you, there's only so many you can put on a train for the train to be able to move the vehicles up and down the grades they're going to face as they're traveling so it's not entirely free of uh, of energy problems in its own right but having a, a rail network which is large enough and active even the uk one because thank christ the 19th century isn't too long of a, away so you still have a a reasonable network, even though half the lines have been shut down. Uh, it's feasible for the United Kingdom to consider that. It's not feasible for America. But it, well, I mean, it could be. I mean, it's a, it's a big country, of course, isn't it? So there's a, there's a lot of building that needs to go on. But also, um, you know, there's the question of capacity, isn't there? How do you pick up the capacity? And this is why I'm actually... The capacity question is why I'm a, a support of HS2, even though it's costing a great deal of money to build a new rail network or build a new fast line up from uh, the, the south of England to the north of England, because uh, the rest of the network has this big problem that there's fast trains and slow trains on the, on the same lines. So, you know, slow trains are stopping the fast trains getting through. If you build a fast rail network and every train is whooshing up the country at 200 miles an hour, uh, they can go every five minutes. You know, you've, you, you've got you've got this massive capacity that you don't have if you've got trains going at 200 miles an hour, but at some point they're going to, you know, have to queue behind a car, a train that's yeah, only going but, 50 but, miles an hour. But, so but, it's like caravans. Down, you know, driving down to the West Country on, you know, you get stuck behind a caravan somewhere. But if you've got fast roads, or in this case, fast trains, then the capacity can increase by an enormous magnitude. But the trouble is you've got to build them. You've got to have the resources to build them. And here we, here we are facing that. Like, actually, I've got, I wanted to actually quote one of Simon's, uh, graphic, which is actually, it's not from the um, uh, Simon's research, it's actually from the Minerals Education Coalition. This is an American, United States Mineral Education Coalition. And this is what they see as a positive. They have a graphic of a young child, they have a baby crawling. It says, every American born will need, now wait for this, 60 kilos of gold, 581 tonnes of sand and gravel, 400 kilos of lead, 158 tonnes of coal, uh, 1,000 kilos of bauxite, 215 kilos of, of, of zinc, 8.5 tonne of iron ore, half a, uh, 500 uh, kilos of, of copper, 23 tonnes of cement, 2.75 billion litres of petrol, 200,000 cubic metres of gas, 7 tonnes of phosphate, 12 and 12 tonnes of of, of uh, salt and five kilos of clay, and, and that's seen as a positive. <laughs> the trouble is, we don't. You multiply that e even by the you know, lower levels for the global 
uh, consumption levels rather than American. We are running out of the minerals. We are really striking. What everybody's satirizing is that the limits to growth got this so wrong, and they're actually talking about Paul Ehrlich rather than the limits to growth. But this is the resource uh, depletion future that limits to growth warned us of, and the economists said, don't worry, we can always find substitutes. Yeah. Well, well, well. Done. And, you know, we're, we're betting on that, aren't we, for finding substitutes for yeah, we're, being we're able to the, move we're out the, with we're the. Bet the planet. We bet it, the planet on substitutability. Yeah, yeah. So, and that, you know, that does raise the question about those minerals existing. Because Deloitte reckon that for the two, 10 years to 2030, uh, between 8 billion and 18 billion pounds of investment uh, in the electric vehicle charge point infrastructure. So there's enough places to charge these things. Maybe 18 billion pounds would be required if we were to meet the government's target in the UK of, of only electric cars being sold by 2030. You'll still be able to buy second-hand uh, petrol cars for however long they last. So they reckon you're going to need 280,000 charge points. And uh, guess what? By the end of 2020, guess how many we had? We had 20,000. So a mm-hmm. bit of a step change is required. And uh, as you're saying, you know, part of the problem might be that uh, are we actually going to have the uh, the mineral requirements for those for those vehicles? But also, I mean, that is going to need big changes to the electricity grid as well. You know, you've got to get power evenly distributed so imagine agricultural areas right now where the demand is not so high all of a sudden they might need uh if they're, if they're an area where there's a busy motorway going through they might need a lot of power for people to recharge you know there's going to be all these pinch points in the distribution network which is our which which is going to need a great deal of investment as well it sounds to me like that is the sort of investment which is not going to be done effectively by the private sector. It's going to need a slug of government money to make this happen, and there's no talk of that whatsoever. Yeah, again, uh, we're presuming... We're assuming a can opener. This is a typical neoclassical behaviour, completely ignoring the physical reality and saying, oh, substitution will bring about something else that makes it possible. And, uh, you know, when you, when you look at, well, okay, what are you going to substitute with lithium? How long will it take you to make the technology that lets you do that? What scale of investment is necessary to do it? All the answers come out looking bloody awful. And, and that is, I think, the future we face that we're going to see, uh, because we haven't built the uh, infrastructure that could make that replacement for private tra- transport with public to take the pressure off the ice uh, off the transition from ice vehicles to electric vehicles, uh, then the cost of all the elements that go into making them right now, in this case particularly lithium, is going to rise, and then that will exclude people who would otherwise like to buy these cars. So you're going to have transportation being something that's possible for the rich but not for the poor, and then if the poorness needed to get to work to do it, well then you real you got real dilemmas. So we are we are setting ourselves up for some extremely challenging. Uh, conundrum in the next one or two decades. So is the fundamental problem for, for all of this is that we have accepted the fact that travel is, is low cost? I mean, are we, are we just buying it too cheaply? We've got used to it, yeah. And we've made it low cost because we've used you know, cheaply available oil. And over time, we've improved the technology. So if you wanted to compare a, you know, an, an 18, a, a 1920s car to a 2020s car, then you know which one you'd prefer to buy. Uh, leaving out the snob value of driving a Model T in 2020. But, yeah, the vehicles are far better. 
that there's only there's a limit to how much more efficient you can make those vehicles and we're, we're already pushing at the boundary the efficiency and the resources are running out so there's no way we can continue compensating by higher efficiency for the remaining resources that we have and that means ultimately these things are going to be rationed either by the market or by the state rather than being priced priced out will just be rationed well yeah yeah, if you, if, you, if you let it be priced out and then it becomes impossible to maintain your production system because workers can't afford the price to get to the factory, you're going to be forced, if you want the goods to be produced, you've got to subsidise the workers to get there. So the whole anti-subsidisation thing, you mentioned Germany earlier, uh, that's got to go out the window. So rationing gets us back again, doesn't it, to this idea of some sort of uh, just like personalised carbon trading scheme. We tend to, when we talk about carbon trading, we tend to think about companies, but this idea that every, everybody has their own carbon credits and they can mm. trade them uh, sort of sort of fixes that problem. Do you know what? I uh, I, I travelled this morning 30 kilometres and uh, I uh, I didn't use any energy apart from uh, apparently looking at my app here, 710 calories that have come from my body, which I actually feel quite good about. I mean, <laughs> you know, we, 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 it, it is a bit sad, isn't it, that we are reliant on burning fuel while we're getting fatter. And, uh, you know, maybe this yeah, is part, right. of the, part of the solution as well. And this is like if you, if you look at. I was on a bike, you, by the way, for those of, people, <laughs> those of you who get the reference. Yeah, but that 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 may well be the way we go. That uh, you simply the the, the one and a half ton uh, metal container we drive ourselves around in these days was always unsustainable in the long term. You may have to replace it with a thirty or forty kilo device uh, with a much smaller battery, where you provide a large amount of the energy. And again, I mean, like I, I think about. Uh, like in London, as I used to commute, I go around everywhere on bicycle in London. Uh, it was faster than going by car, definitely. And it was faster than, uh, a lot of cases, faster than going by tube to bicycle where I needed to go. And uh, and uh, we, if you want to do that at the, the global scale, then you go from, you know, as I said, like one, one and say, say 3,000 kilo uh, devices to 50 kilo, where you can have 60 times as many of them uh, out that way. So it may be what we actually forced to do is not replace uh, internal combustion cars with with electric cars. We may have to go from internal combustion cars to electric yeah. bicycles. Which of, of which there are many more around. It's cheating, of course, but I can see that if you, uh, you know, I mean, people overtaking me going up hills on their electric bikes, and I, I hate them for it. But, you know, if, it, if it's getting people yeah. out, then that, 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 that is great. And if it becomes actually just the way you commute, then I think that is fantastic. Uh, and maybe we'll get there when it comes to, you know, short trips uh, because energy is becoming so much more expensive uh, and and therefore you know we, we we want to keep our cars parked at home the problem is of course and we might accept that you know there, there, there is a possibility that we'll say yeah okay we're going to use our cars less because uh, the cost of fuel is so high what we what we won't wash is air travel becoming substantially more expensive realistically more expensive if we're looking at the damage it's doing to the environment that won't that is a that is a political point that you do not want to make because you, whoever it is who makes that point, will be out of power for. for no, a generation. no, I, I actually think I think it's actually going to be easier to make because the whole period of cheap international travel may be over. You know, you you, you are the one generation that managed to go and see uh, Angkor Wat and uh, Machu Picchu in one lifetime. Uh, in future, the wealthy can do it. Uh, the wealthy will be able to afford the air tickets, but uh, the, the the idea of cheap travel. Uh, international may completely disappear. But no one's going to be happy about that. Try telling the Brits they're not going to the Costa del Sol this summer. 
uh, and they'll have to go to South End. That's not going to go down too well. Yeah, well, welcome to reality. But it's also not great for, uh, you know, for peace in the world either. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the more we travel, the less racist we become. Well, actually, maybe I'll take all of that back. <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's no evidence of that whatsoever. No, I, mean, I, th- I think, uh, you know, we're going to have to say what are our priorities for transportation. And fundamentally, it's going to come down to maintaining the production system while you reduce the energy consumption uh, and, and, and the mineral load on the planet as well. And that means a whole range of discretionary things we've got used to in the last 40 or 50 years go out the window. And I think one of the first will be cheap international travel for the, for, the, for the hoi polloi. It'll become something that is expensive international travel and only either the wealthy or business uh, or government uh, uh, will be able to do yeah. it. And if we're going down that carbon credit scheme um, that, we, that we talked about, then it would use up a hell of a lot of carbon credits. So, uh, Yeah, uh, yeah. Which I'd the, be in trouble. I mean, my yeah. international travel for conferences right now, be, you know, that'll go out the window. So um, it, 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 there's a serious changes coming our way. And we're, to think it's all about a case of changing from internal combustion engine cars to electric cars is just getting the scale. Yeah, well, that's wrong. why I wanted to talk about it today, because it feels like it is just touching the surface. And so we need some sort of coordinated solution, don't we? I mean, governments need to be onto this, but they're not really, are they? I mean, on the global scale, just that big question about, you know, how do we live in a world where people travel less? And then on a more localized scale, how do we get people out of cars and using other forms of uh, uh, other forms of transport and using, for example, cross subsidies? Do you remember that the old the old fashioned idea in Britain that British Rail used to cross subsidize some services with other services? And, that, and then that was part of the reason for actually privatizing the railways was because those cross subsidization of services so the fast mainline services which are which were costing more were helping to subsidize some of the branch lines uh where people could afford less um that was seen as a bad thing it was because it's a misallocation of resources steve have you ever heard that argument uh, <laughs> but the idea that you have a coordinated transport policy with you know cost subsidies and, an, and a realistic aspiration of you know how much travel should really be going on that is not an election winner for anybody, is it really? Because it's not focused. It's not front of mind for people. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 seen it's seen as something that the markets determine. Yeah. Basically, nothing. You know, the government should just uh, pull their finger out of it. Well, I think it, we're going to have to see what happens with you know, genuine climate catastrophes to wake people up and how serious this is. Because you wouldn't have accepted that rationing in 1938 either in the UK. You accepted it in 1939 mm. because it was either that or you start learning German, and uh, and and this is the uh, the danger that uh, we have conditioned ourselves to a world which cannot be sustained. So when the change comes along, we'll be unprepared for it. One of my favourite movies is a movie called They Shoot Horses, Don't They, with Jane Fonda in the lead role. Mm. And you look at these people, they're just deciding to go and do this dance contest where the winner is the one who remains vertical for the longest period. Embarrassing... (laughs) Etc. Etc. But at least you get fed, and that you have people who used to be dancing in the 1929 dancing of Charleston and having a great old time. This is how they had to survive in the 1930s, utterly unprepared for it, and that was why the Great Depression was such a huge shock. I think we're facing a similar one coming our way in terms of energy consumption, and then the level of consumption in general that we have enjoyed in the West. It's just not going to be possible. The period coming forward, and you simply have to adjust to it. So electric vehicles equals false hope 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's some. It's certainly the electric vehicles. The more that are on the road compared to ICE, the less carbon we're pumping into the atmosphere. That is, in its own way, worthwhile. But we simply cannot provide. And this is where Simon Meinshaw's work is so important. We simply cannot replace every ICE car on the planet with an electric vehicle because we don't have the lithium. Uh, we don't have the elements now that are needed to the essential part of that of that process. We don't have the copper uh, to, mm. to, you know, the, all these things which are less important in an ICE car, far more important than an electric vehicle. The scale of production we have of the minerals needed to do it just doesn't enable us to make that kind of transition. So in the short term, we need to travel less. Well, in the long term, we need to travel less as well, but we've got to get that aspiration while we work on trying to find alternatives to lithium that will allow us to you know if we want to travel more we've got to find alternatives to enable us to uh, to use electric power more but also make vehicles that much more efficient and use alternatives like public transport as much as possible as well you'll be very pleased to know that the uk obviously is onto all of this because they've got the future <laughs> of transport strategy that gives you hope, doesn't it? The future of transport strategy. That, that sounds like they're going to fix all of those problems that we've been talking about, Steve. But when you look at it, I don't know, it looks a bit wishy-washy. It's got ta- The targets are advance decarbonisation, improve air quality, tackle congestion, and improve our communities and make them better places to live. It, oh, they, how sweet. It's lovely, isn't oh, it? It's beautiful. Yeah. And it's got a nice colour cover to it as well. I bet it's printed on really nice paper. I've only seen the online version, but I'm sure it's glossy and it feels nice. But it doesn't remind me of, It doesn't reflect the step it, change it, that's it, required, does it? No, I don't know how many people who are listening are fans of the Hitchcock Guide to the Galaxy, but this is reminding me of the session where um, the, the phone sanitizers, bureaucrats and, and, uh, and hairdressers who crashed onto the planet from the planet Golgofrinchian are sitting around in a circle trying to work out how to design a wheel. And finally, Ford Previca has all he can all he can cope with it and marches look it's the simplest bloody invention in history it's just a circle that's all you need to do and one of them says okay mr wise guy if you're so smart what color do you think it should be um you know so that the the We've got all this glossy planning, which is not at all prepared for the eventualities we face. Yeah, well, I think in this space, that is uh, so true, isn't it, really? We are just pootling around the edges, not really confronting the big issues. We are. Uh, Good. Well, it's not good. But that, it's good that we've it's good that we've uh, covered it, and uh, we'll, we'll do it and do another one. We'll pick on something else next week. Good to talk, Steve. Okay. Right. And next week, well, we don't, I don't know what we're going to talk about next week, but look, one thing you can be certain of: we are never short of ideas after three hundred episodes or so over six years. But look, if you've got a suggestion, we always welcome those as well. Uh, you can send me an email: phil at loudmouthcoms.com is probably the best way, or via Patreon, uh, you can do that, or you can tweet us as well. Uh, you can. Find find us both on twitter uh next week uh, join us again for another one i'm phil dobby he's steve keen this is the debunking economics podcast catch you next week here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.